but having the ability to to have different type of mental models and to embrace them helps you choose the right one depending on the situations getting too stuck in one frame is something very very dangerous because the world is changing and we we, we are not adjusting otherwise What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 49 of Be More Well. This week, I'm speaking with Francis de Vericourt. Uh, we had a great chat about framing and decision making. This one was a ton of fun, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. First, Be More Well is a wellness-focused podcast hosted by me, Jeff St. Pierre. Uh, what do I know about wellness? Really, almost nothing, but that's why I started this podcast. I wanted to talk to people from all across the wellness spectrum, anybody really who's got a story to tell about how they have found mindfulness and wellness in their life. Ultimately, my goal here is to provide you with some information and some inspiration that will hopefully help you be happier, be healthier, less stressed, more mindful. I just want you all to be more well, and I'm taking this journey with you. A little behind the scenes for you here, when I'm prepping for an interview, I try to do some research on my guests beforehand. I look them up online to see what they're all about, and if they're an author, I really do my best to read their book. Uh, sometimes that's a challenge. I'm a painfully slow reader, and I have a six-month-old at home that occupies a lot of my time, but I do put a good amount of effort into being ready before I chat with someone. I can honestly say that this conversation you're about to hear is the very first one where my guest admitted to doing research on me. Francis de Vericourt looked up Be More Well before we had our conversation to see what he was getting into, and thankfully he was still up for it. And I got to say, it was a little intimidating. You know, knowing that he knew what I was all about made me want to be extra good for this conversation. I like kind of having low expectations. So this put a little bit of pressure on me. I do think we had a great conversation though. Francis is one of three authors of a new book called Framers, Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil. I'm going to be straight up with you. There's a lot in this book, a lot, but it's really interesting. I've always been fascinated by this idea of perception versus reality. You know, my classic example I use is shark attacks. We think that sharks are the most dangerous animals on the planet, and there's terror lurking in the water when we walk into the ocean. But in 2020, there were 57 shark attacks in the entire world. That is such a small number. So the perception is that they're terrifying and that if you walk into the ocean, you're going to get attacked by a shark. But the reality is that there is an astronomically small chance that you'll actually get attacked. And I've talked to quite a few people on Be More Well about how important perspective is. Changing your perspective on things can change the way you view life. Framing is kind of like those examples right there, but it's different. Uh, it's how we look at things and ultimately how we make decisions. So we talk about this example during the conversation, but let's look at the pandemic. Some countries like the U.S. and U.K. framed the pandemic as a flu, but New Zealand framed it as SARS. The responses between the framers were drastically different, and we saw the results. New Zealand had almost no deaths from COVID, while the U.S. has gone on to have one of the worst death rates in the world. That's just one example of framing. There are so many different ways to look at it. And Francis's book also looks at how technology and artificial intelligence will never really surpass humans here because they don't have the capability to frame like we do. It's really interesting stuff. So I hope you like this conversation. Francis was great too. So I'm hoping I can convince him to join me again for a future chat. I love connecting to him over there in Berlin. It's just always so cool to connect with people for this podcast that are in different countries. I mean, Berlin, I've talked to people in the UK, talked to somebody in Colombia. I mean, it's just, it's wild. So hopefully we can get Francis back on sometime soon. And before we dive into this chat, 
couple of housekeeping rules for you. Be sure to follow Be More Well on whatever platform you're using right now. Click that subscribe button so you'll be notified of all future episodes and updates. I would appreciate it if you could rate the show and leave a review. That kind of interaction helps the podcast gods uh, know which shows are making an impact and helps to suggest them out to new listeners. It would really be amazing if you could take a minute and rate and review for me. Also, I'm on social media. You can find us on Instagram at Be More Well Podcast. You can also look me up if you're interested. It's at St. Pierre on air. Please feel free to send me a DM with any comments or questions or even guest or topic ideas. I do love hearing from you on what you'd like to learn more about. All of these topics that I bring up are things that I'm interested in, but if there's something you want to you know, find out more about, I'm happy to do the research and get them on the show. So let me know. And time for my conversation with Francis de Baracourt. Well, it's it's a pleasure to meet you, in fact, because I, I, you know, I didn't know what I was getting into, and I started to listen to your podcast, and I, I started to really like it, in fact. And I, yeah, I'm very um, admirative of um, yeah, you taking the risk and you know going, doing it, trying it, exposing yourself. Uh, it's very, it's amazing. So I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, congratulations. Well, thank you. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you, you know, did a little research uh, on me because I always feel like I'm doing all the research. So that's kind of funny. No, <laughs> oh, it's great. It's great. It's great. I, I loved it. Um, I'm going to continue listening to it. And oh. I don't say that to many hosts. I mean, so, yeah. Well, thank you very much. I, I do appreciate that. You know, it, it is interesting. I, I feel like uh, a lot of us, you know, uh, get to age 22, essentially, when college is wrapping up for most people, and they just kind of stop learning. And I was one of those people. I mean, after after college, I went uh, many years without even reading a book because it just wasn't something on my radar. Oh. And now I just think, like, I missed out on so much information, and I, and I crave learning now. I want to learn about so many different things, and I want to just yeah. educate yeah. myself on what's going on out yeah. there in the world and how I can live a better life and, and all of that. And it's so... It's kind of funny how my perspective has shifted recently. No, this is great. This is great. And where is so you did? Where did you do college? Where did you go for college? I uh, a school outside of Philadelphia called Villanova University. No, I don't know it. Sorry. No, that's okay. Yeah. I feel like most people that know it are <laughs> basketball fans because they have a very good college basketball program. <laughs> well, okay, I should know because I spent I spent many 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 years at Duke University. Okay. So. Uh, but I'm, you know, as you as you've guessed, I'm European in uh, basketball. I, I had to learn yes. <laughs> to appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, they, <laughs> so, they do have basketball there, but it's different. It's not the same as what we, you know, experience yeah. here in America. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true, and it's a beautiful game. It's a beautiful. I mean, once you're into it, it's um, it's it's amazing. Uh, so I, I started to learn about it and became, of course, a fan of the Blue Devils. Of course. I mean, you can't <laughs> I, I you can't to, work uh, at Duke without that, I right? I would have been fired. Yeah, I would have been fired otherwise. <laughs> I think I think the second you walk on campus, they tattoo you, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, that, that's right. That's right. Yes, indeed. Well, I, I'm so interested in your work because I was looking at the press materials for the book, and they call you yep. a pioneering yep. scholar in decision-making oh, science. What What yes. is decision-making science all about? Well, it, it's a science about how to make um, better decisions. Um, well, you know, they, it's it's nice word they put about me, but it's, uh, as, as always, it's a bit inflated. Um, so, yes, I'm doing research and I'm teaching a lot of decision making and I'm using uh, maybe a scientific approach if you want to do this. Um, I mean, if I, you know, I can tell you the story how I fell in love with it, uh, which was uh, when I was a student in France. I was, I'm a... I study applied mathematics and computer science, so I'm a nerd. <laughs> it's okay. Happy to be a nerd. 
and I entered his rooms, his classroom, and it was in small group, and it was a class on, on decision making. And he was um, a professor, he was half French, half American, in fact. He was coming from, from California. And to my surprise, I thought decision making was about psychology, and it is certainly it is, but um, after five minutes, there were a lot of math going on. And I was, yeah, I was lost. <laughs> it's like, um, it's like, okay, I'm going to talk to, to learn about decision making and this is with math. And, and then I start to realize how, in fact, um, and in fact, it's linked to the book, it's how um, by building a representation of the world, mental model and mathematics can help you do that. But it was not about the math. It's, it was about trying to build a representation about how the world worked to constrain your thinking, to help you think well. And so if I have to summarize it, this is, that's what is decision science, is to try to build tools, representation that constrain in some sense your thinking in a way that helps you being efficient at making decisions. And having these, you know, the, the intuition, the psychology on one hand, meeting what we think is the opposite, which is the nerdy math and the pain and for, for some of us, um, bringing together was fascinating to me. And so since then, you know, that, that basically became my profession in many ways. It is kind of interesting because I think decision-making is something that we all, you know, we take for granted because it's things you do every single day. I mean, do I have coffee this morning or not? That's a decision. But your your brain kind of inherently weighs the risks of either way. Like, say, the coffee example, your brain will think, well, if I don't have coffee, I might be tired. So you might want to make that. You know, so there is a lot going on that you just kind of take for granted with every decision. You know, for there are the small decisions, and for the small decisions, your brain is in a habit mode, basically. So you don't think about two things. Uh, once I had, I had a student coming to me and asking, well, when you have a date with your wife, you know, do you draw a decision tree? And of course I'm not, you know, it's like, what the point is like, um, so for those mundane daily life decisions, um, your brain is in, in the mode of habit, I would say. But then some at some point in your life, you are facing very, very hard, unexpected sometimes decisions. And this is where you need to step back. Uh, your gut feelings plays a role. I'm not saying you should ignore your gut feelings, but you, you really need to approach this type of decisions carefully because it's, the consequence may be huge. And having this type of framing representations and carefully playing with it helps you become a better decision maker is, is basically. Yeah. And you just used the word framing because uh, that yeah. is what we are going to be talking about here today, too, because you are one of the three authors on the book Framers, right. Human Advantage in an Age of Technology and Turmoil. Now, the other two gentlemen you're working with, they previously wrote a book together and you were brought in for this one here. So how did that relationship come about? So, um, in fact, I will say it's, it's more it's more Ken that was brought in this time. Um, it, it helped. So Victor, which is um, one of the co-authors, is a long-time friend of mine, is, is a professor at Oxford, is doing something different. He's, he's doing a lot of uh, internet regulations, big data. And, um, and he came one day and he said, I want to write a book with you. And I was surprised. I said, yeah, I'm happy to write a book with you. Um, and he wanted to, at the beginning, he started by, the, the theme was um, decision-making in the age of artificial intelligence. Um, and, and because AI is taking over more and more some of our decisions, so that what does it mean for us? And then while talking, we broaden the scope of the of the of the book. And in parallel, he had another pal, which was Ken, 
uh, with whom he wrote a book, as you said, and he shared the ideas uh, that we had, and it happened that Ken had similar thoughts. He was thinking about the same thing, and then that's how the trio framers was born. Um, so I, I've benefited so from, you know, the friend of your friend is your friend, so I've benefited from the friendship between Victor and Ken. And uh, here we are, the three of us with uh, a book I, I really love. I, we spent three years writing it, and it was a, really a pleasure. Well, that's actually an interesting point, too, because you do reference the pandemic in the book uh, multiple yeah. occasions. So how you said you spent three years on it. How far along with the book were you when the pandemic? I mean, I imagine you were probably pretty close to being done, right? We were in the, yeah, you know, like three three quarters. No, the, the thing is, what happened is um, we had, we were talking about another epidemics that mm. had have been studying uh, five, six years ago, I've been really following and did research on it, which was the Ebola. You, I do not know if you remember, it was in 2014 in West Africa. You had this outbreak uh, in Guinea. And um, basically, WHO, the World Health Organization, totally messed up at the time. And you had a nonprofit organizations uh, that were there and had, you know, could predict what would happen. To make a long story short, the, there were very, very few cases at the time. And then you had two organizations on the on the ground. They had exactly the same data. They had exactly the same expertise, and they had the same objective basically. And so, how is it that one said we can control it, no problem, and the other said no, 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 you have a big problem. And the reason is because they framed the situation differently. And so that we were writing that story, how we had written that story, and and the research behind it and all that. And then uh, COVID hit. And it was exactly the same story at, at a much bigger scale. When when you see the different countries trying to wrestle with the with the issues and frame the same epidemics with the same data, data totally differently, we had again um, the same the same contrast um, between the two. So that's that's how it happened basically. So I, I want to follow up on that, but before I do. I'd love for you to give us sort of a definition or an explanation of how you're using the word framers and what you mean when you're talking about framing and framers in this book. Yes, yeah, it's it's a very important point. Um, the truth is that we, we've been using the word framing and, and, and frames maybe less, but framing all the time. So, so basically what the book does is to try to show people that it's much deeper than that, okay? It's, it's much deeper than using framing in our language. There is a science behind it. There is an, a, a very... Uh, well-defined way to approach it. So, so if we let us start with frame. Okay, a, a frame is a cognitive tools. Think of it as a mental model mm -hmm. that helps you represent the world. And by representing the world, what we really mean is that your your frame, your mental model, is going to highlight some information for your problem, and more importantly, is going to leave aside some aspect of the problem. If I can give you a metaphor or an example, if you come, and I hope one day you will, you come to visit me uh, in Berlin. I'm, I'm right now in Berlin. If you've never been in Berlin, you're a bit lost. I give you a nice bar where we can have a drink and you are going to use your iPhone most likely. And on your iPhone, you're not going to use Google Earth. You're going to use Google Map. Now it's a bit strange because Google Earth has much more information than Google Map. All the information on Google Map is pretty much on Google Earth, but you're still using Google Map. And the reason you're using Google Map is because it simplifies things. It leaves a lot of things out. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, it helps you imagine which routes you want to take. So um, 
a mental model a frame works exactly the same way you use it to highlight some some aspect of the problem to run counterfactual to imagine what you can do and make in the end um, hopefully better decisions now framers are us are using those those um is, is the human who is able to use those frames in a way that neither an animals or artificial intelligence can't and and framing is the act of bringing a frame to to a problem so it's a bit technical sorry I'm, i told you i'm a nerd i apologize again but <laughs> <laughs> no it's okay but, I, I think we're going to bring it all yeah. back around here because uh to go back to what you were saying about ebola you had two groups of people with the exact yes. same information but they yes. were looking at it uh, forgive me if i'm saying this wrong they were looking at it in different frames like they had exactly. they had a different framing of the situation and i feel like we exactly. faced something very similar at least here in america at the beginning of the pandemic we were you know we had leaders that were framing covid 19 19 as the seasonal flu, but we also had health officials that were framing it as this could be a really massive problem that we're going to face. And, and it became a split, you know, which made it very difficult because you had people that were identifying with both frames. And, and that's, I guess that's a challenge when you have framing here. <laughs> oh, so, and, and you, you summarize it very well. I mean, the thing is, um, even, you know, even uh, healthcare officials, uh, the CDC in the US, but but elsewhere, you have different people framing the same situation differently. And so if you compare, for instance, I'm going to bring you out a bit of the US, but you compare what happened in the UK, they, they really frame it as, as a flu. That's how they, they thought about it. They knew it was more dangerous. I mean, it's like those people are not stupid. I mean, it's like it's, they knew, but basically what they wanted to do is by framing it as a flu, we are going to contain it and hopefully still have our normal life, but let us contain it. And then you have New Zealand, and we talk about that in the book, they frame it as SARS. What is, what is interesting is that um, New Zealand is close to Asia, and Asia is basically the area of the world that had experienced SARS. So they were closer to, to this type of framing, but they had both because New Zealand is tied to the UK and it's tied to Asia. So they had to make a choice, and they really consider both approaches, and they settled for SARS, and the rest is history. I mean, they, they did an amazing, amazing job. So, so the, 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 and this is exactly what happened at, uh, with Ebola. You had WHO who framed it in a certain way. I'm not going to go into the, the details, sure. but they use a specific frame and, and another organization, which is called Doctor Without Border, who use a different frame. And one was right in the end and the other was wrong. It's so, I mean, everything in life is this way, but it's so interesting that, like we said before, you can have the same information, but you can look at it in totally different ways. And, you know, sometimes one tends to be right and one tends to be wrong. And it, it, it's always hard when you find yourself on the wrong side of things. Yes. And, and, um, and that's why I think it's very, very important that each one of us individually, but at a societal level, we have um, a large repertoire of frames at our disposal so that we can look at the same situation with different point of view, instead of sticking to our own frame, we know they work, we love them. This is like when you go to politics, I mean, I, this is what we are all doing. I mean, we, we analyze the economy, what's going on with our conservative or, or liberal frames, and we keep doing that because it's, you know, it's painful to try to, to take the other perspective. But having the ability to, to have different type of mental models and to embrace them helps you choose the right one, depending on the situations 
getting too stuck in one frame is something very, very dangerous because the world is changing and we, we, we are not adjusting otherwise. I'm glad you mentioned that because that was something that I made a note about is I feel like we, we are getting to a point where people are just looking in one frame and they're not taking the chance to say, okay, well, that's great, but like, but maybe, maybe there's something else. Maybe there is another frame that I could look at. And that that's, it's kind of scary in that way that there are so many people that are just finding themselves in one lane for everything. And, and you're, you're, you're right, and I worry for the same thing. I mean, what I find even more worrisome um, in the US, I, you know, in, from a distance, and, and God, I love this country. I spent uh, 10 years of my life there, and I, my daughter is an American citizen. Uh, but, but, but what scares me that I can see on, on, on both sides of, of, of the political discourse, that it's not only that uh, people are embracing a frame, that there is a bit of a tendency to forbid diversity of thinking. I mean, you, you see that, um, and it's very dangerous to get into politics, but oh, sure. I mean, on, on the GOP, it's pretty clear there's one frame that is taking root, and with the liberal as well, they, you know, they seem that, you know, they, there is a frame that is dominating, and this, this idea of one, having one frame that dominates all other frames is, is very dangerous. That's that the most dangerous things in the end. Whether you're liberal or, or conservative, it's like you need to have a diversity, not only to talk to each other, but who knows, you know, the world is changing and, and it, sometimes it might be better to, look with, to, to approach the problem with a new and different perspective. In your book, you talk a lot about technology and I feel like technology in a lot of ways is helping with this progression to people sticking in one lane because the artificial intelligence of say social media is trying to figure out what you might like and what you might be interested in. So it pushes different things your way that fall in line with the things that it believes, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting how all of this does kind of tie together, you know? No. So, so, so you're right. I mean, you're talking about a phenomena where um, basically it's called the confirmation bias. Sorry, I am a nerd. I no, have to please, say it, I love it. I've actually it heard that a, phrase it, before. I love it. Yes. So, so, so it's basically, uh, if you're on Facebook, uh, your friends are going to be proposed because they are the friends of your friends. So basically, you are constructing the same the bubble in which you already are. And if you are on Amazon and you read that type of books, of course, the algorithm is going to reinforce uh, what you what you like and um, and confirm the the, the frames you always offering you the same way of thinking about the world, basically. And so it requires, in fact, a lot of effort. And this is something that we need to do individually to push ourselves and read, in fact, read the book you don't want to read. <laughs> the, the book that, you know, like, yeah, I, I hate this guy, I hate that, but let me read it just to, at least, I don't have to agree, but at least to understand um, the key element of the framing that is behind it and not oversimplify it a priori, but look at what is the causal rationale behind all that. How does this person think about the world? And who knows, in a different context, that could help me. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've been called a, um, a pessimist by some people in my office because what I try to do is when somebody proposes an idea of, say, you know, I work at a radio station and we do a lot of concerts and events, and if they propose an idea for let's put this concert together, I will try to frame it in a different perspective and look at what are our challenges going to be. Not, you know, they might say, hey, this is going to be really exciting. We're going to plan this really big event, have a great time. And say, well, OK, well, how are we going to navigate getting people in? How are we going to find parking? What are we? And, and I look at that as just trying to frame it so we know we're checking all the boxes and we have all of the problems in view so we can solve them. 
but other people don't necessarily see my frame in the same way. <laughs> no, but it, you know, you you point to a very important point um, where if you frame things differently, it may create frictions, and and so people do not like frictions. It's like so you think that way, and that contradicts what other people are thinking, and it's it's not a comfortable feeling. So the one reaction is just to you know. Okay, Jeff, shut up. It's, it's interesting, but let's move on. So we, we need to live with this. It's okay to have friction. It, it, it has to be managed. But if we if we uh, run away from any frictions, we may miss miss a very important um, uh, perspective. And there is a name for that. It's a, a Cassandra syndrome. I mean, you it's it's his um, his character in in a long time ago. Um, it's, uh, who, who had the, the power of foreseeing the future. And uh, the, the curse was with that power came a curse, which was that nobody will understand her when she will tell the, the truth and, and foretell the future. And so in many organizations, you have the Cassandra, like the person who, who, who saw the future and the, the financial crisis in, in 2008, 2009, all those people, there were many people in those banks who were saying, well, be careful, be careful, and nobody listened to them. And an organization that, and, and, and you as, as an individual have this ability to listen to the friends that, uh, you know, yeah, you know, they are pessimistic and all that. So it's very important that you learn to overcome that frictions. And well, let me listen for a sec. Even if I don't want to hear it, let me listen and let me embrace that view. I don't want to oversimplify framing, but I feel like there's multiple levels of what framing can be. And there were examples that kind of made me feel like framing is also another term for marketing. You know, like Apple Apple framed the phone as a computer and they kind of won the, the smartphone battle because they were framing yes. the way the phone. And that to me is just really smart marketing, you know, or Spotify beat Apple and music because of the way that, and I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of a marketing campaign. Am I wrong to kind of view it? In that no, way? it is much more than that because when, when Apple took over Nokia, they framed what a phone was mm. and that drove all their business model so it's not only how to market the product it's also letting developers develop apps that were not apple's made for the iphone which was in total contrast with nokia which they saw it as a telecommunication device that had to be robust um, reliable uh, your iphone breaks much more than a nokia phone but they approach it as an old telecommunication uh, system. So it's well beyond marketing. It's the whole business model approach um, a strategy that is behind it. Now, where you write it, that framing is used very often in marketing to try to change your mindset. So I'm trying to influence the way you think about my product so that you frame it in a certain way so that hopefully you're more likely to buy it. So framing is used all the time in marketing, but in the case of, of Nokia and business models and, 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 and business in general, it's, it's much deeper than that. Hmm. And, and technology-wise, computers have advanced so much and, and we can have them do so many things, but there is a point where they can't quite get to the framing that we can do as humans. We have the ability to see different aspects than the technology may be able to. So, so machine learning do not frame. They do not know how to frame. I mean, when, when, when you use a machine and they make you a recommendation, let's say you go to Amazon, you want to buy 
framers and you buy framers, but it comes with another book. This is the outcome of a, a machine learning system. But the machine learning does not tell you why, what is the, 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 the reason that that algorithm choose that particular book because there's no causal rationale, there's no frame behind it. It just, in the data I have, this is the closest, mm. that's it. So machine learning, AI, do not frame, do not understand causality, do not do um, a counterfactual that is his Im imagination process uh, in a way that we do. And this is a huge advantage we have over the machine. And if you want to stay relevant, um, in the edge of AI, this is the, the cognitive muscle that we need to train and, and realize how powerful it can be. I find myself trying to frame a lot right now because my office is getting ready to reopen. I've been working from home for 14 months yeah. now, I think. And, and for me, it's been revolutionary. I mean, I, I feel like I've been so much more productive and creative and I've accomplished so much more. But the people that are in power, if you will, are not viewing it the same way. They still see the office, you know, through the one lens. This is where everybody has to be. This is our world. And I, I keep trying to point out, like, well, the job is getting done. It's getting done better, faster, in different ways. Why do you need me to come back in? So I find myself framing a lot of that right now. And, you know, I, I, I think there's no way back. Um, that the, the, the this year that we've passed, confined. I mean, it has changed our mindset, our way of thing, seeing the world. In fact, it's very interesting that we realize, as you said, Jeff, that there are many things that we can do more efficiently at home, and it's possible. And what is intriguing is why did we have to wait a pandemic to realize that? Right. It was just a mental model. You know, it was just that mm -hmm. the way it was framed before. And then the pandemic makes us rethink um, about those changes. And I think there's no way back because you know the company is, is, is also saving money very often. There's no travels anymore when you had to travel, uh, maybe less space office required, et cetera, et cetera. So they, it is going to be more, more I think, flexible. Now, it depends on which, in which organizations. I hope for you that people will, will adjust in, in your, uh, on your job. But the key point for me is that we could have done that before the pandemic. And there are probably many other ways that we have not uncovered yet where we could work in a more efficient way, a better way. And it's only because we lack the, the mental representations. There, there are some constraints we take for granted. We're not aware of them. But if we carefully think about it, we may continue to innovate in that space. That, that is your, your point of why did it take a pandemic for us to realize that we could do all of this. It is such a fascinating thing that my wife and I have talked about a lot. It's like, why, why was it this? Why was this the catalyst to make us all understand that, oh, wow, I can plug my phone into my computer and do this interview with someone from Berlin. Why, why didn't I do that before? You know? Yeah, it's because the world has changed and it, you, you had no choice, basically. So you were, we were all forced into situations where the only way to function was to rethink the way we were doing things. But the lesson is um, maybe we should, next time, we should not wait for that to happen. Maybe right now, if we carefully think about it, we may uncover in whatever you do, it's not only business in your, in your personal life, in, in, um, with your kids, different ways of doing things. And the only thing that is hold you, holding you back is the constraint that you're imposing on the way to think about it. Um, and if you start to recognize them and play with them, maybe you'll be happier in your life. 
Well, I will say that I'm very glad that I started taking, uh, I started to take this chance to talk to people via Zoom because I used to do all of these on the phone, and I just feel such a better connection to folks yeah, like yourself, getting a chance to meet same you, here. even though you're, yeah. you know, halfway across the world from me in Berlin. I, I love the fact that we could actually see each other same. to have this conversation. Very exciting. Yeah, <laughs> same here. Same here. It's, it's super nice to connect uh, with you across the ocean. Thanks, thanks to Zoom and not on the phone. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're on a whirlwind press tour and I'm running out of time here with you, but before I yes. wrap up, where can people go to find out more information about you, the book or the work that you're doing? Um, I'm, you know, read the book. It's like you have all my, the book summarize a lot of the thinking that have been put into these type of questions for many years. And um, you can find it on Amazon. It's called Framers. And you can also, we have um, a website, which is framers-books.com. Uh, have a look please. <laughs> <laughs> well, Francis, it's been a pleasure meeting you and chatting with you. Thank you again for the kind words at the beginning. I do love this book. I have to go finish it now. Um, there's a lot of great information in it, and I'm a painfully slow reader, but I'm excited to wrap up the rest of it uh, and get all of it in. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Take care. Big thank you to Francis de Vericourt for his time today. I do hope you check out the book to see more about what they're doing. And think about these things as you make decisions. How are you framing things? Are you looking at the perspective of other people? My brain has been working on overdrive with all this stuff. It's really fascinating. And thank you to all of you for checking out this show. I appreciate your time and support. Please subscribe to Be More Well if you haven't already and leave a rating and review for those podcast gods to see. Until next time, be well.